With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I have Peter Diamandis and Stephen Kotler, author of the new best-selling book, Bold. And I definitely recommend this book. It's called Bold, How to Go Big, Create Wealth, and Impact the World. And it was totally an inspirational book. And, and Peter and Stephen, before I finish the intro, I just want to say why it was inspirational to me. I am so sick of doom and gloom media. Every day you open the newspaper and it's like, oh, Greece debt is going to topple the world and it's, it's the end of everything. But I always, I, you guys wrote Abundance a couple of years ago. Now you have Bold. There's always this uh, optimistic view that makes sense where technology is moving ahead so fast, it's basically going to surpass all this doom and gloom news that's out there. Uh, do you get that reaction from your books, from readers of your books? Uh, yeah. Uh, I think it's one of the one of the reasons that uh, people are drawn to it is – we are saturated by every news media on the planet bringing negative news to your television in high definition over and over and over again in every news media we have. And uh, I think people need to not only hear the good news but have a mindset that allows them to say, okay, just because the news media tells me this doesn't mean that's the way the world really is. There's a, there's a cognitive bias. And, and Stephen, over to you, pal. Yeah, I mean, James, he's 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 not he's not wrong. The the brain, the way the brain does that filters mean, does that mean I'm right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It means Peter's right. Were you being the, passive aggressive <laughs> there, Stephen? <laughs> Secret, he's sort yes. of wrong. I wish he was wrong just once, but I there's there's this great Wolfgang Pauli story where Wolfgang Pauli was like 18 or 19 years old and heard Albert Einstein give a lecture, and you know Einstein was already famous at this point, and I think it won the Nobel and, and afterwards Paulie stood up and said, you know what Mr. Einstein said, it was not so stupid. <laughs> so, so yeah, do you have, do you have people come up to you and say, listen, you guys are ignoring the massive U S debt, uh, all, you know, all these economic things, healthcare, blah, blah, blah. Do, do you get that? Of course we get it, but we also, you know, abundance is chock-a-block with statistics about, you know, what the world 
is really like now and how much progress we've really made in the past hundred years. And the numbers, you know, are, are staggering. We live at the most peaceful time in the history of the world. Violence has dropped 500 fold since the middle ages. Poverty has, has dropped 50 fold in the last 50 years, more in the past 50 years than any time in the previous 500. We can go on and on and on. The more interesting question is why are people so biased to the negative news and unable to look at kind of the bigger picture? And why do you think that is? Is that a, a cognitive bias? Like Again, like if you are in the jungle, like our ancestors, and you see a lion over here and, I don't know, a cherry tree over here, you're going to pay more attention to the lion, to the negative news in front of you. Well, you're absolutely correct, right? Our brain evolved in an era of immediacy, and the first order of business for the brain is survival, right? So the first filter all incoming information makes is the amygdala. It's our danger detector, right? So normally, we are biased towards negative information. In fact, there's some new research out that says, I don't know if this is exact, so I don't, I'm hesitant to quote it, but it says you need about six or seven kind of positive facts to dislodge one negative fact in just terms of the cognitive weight the brain gives it because of its neural architecture. I sort of feel like that's a negative fact now that I need some positive facts to, uh-huh. uh, to, to get over it. But we're going to get to that. Because I want to get straight to your six Ds. Your, your whole point is the world is essentially being overrun by these exponentially growing industries and businesses. And I want to get to your, the six Ds that you use to model out what is an exponential business. And maybe you can help me define each one. Um, so, so digitalization is, is the first one that you guys talk about. That, that's sort of the obvious one, like the Internet is digitalizing everything. But is there something – you know, extra you want to say about that? Uh, only that, you know, when you digitize something, uh, which is the term I would use as the first of the six Ds, uh, and turn it from analog, from like a handwritten page into ASCII type on your computer, the ability to duplicate it perfectly at marginally zero cost is what makes it so interesting. And then the ability for computers, which are getting faster and faster and faster, we use the term Moore's Law, this exponential growth of computing power to act on that digital information. And it effectively puts you, it starts you onto, onto uh, the 60s when you digitize something. And the challenge becomes, and again, this is the cognitive biases that Stephen talked about. We evolved as humans in a time when the world was very linear. Nothing changed year to year to year. You know, things were the same for a century, for a millennium. And uh, as, as such, we have a linear cognitive bias. When we see something growing, even exponentially, 0. 0.01 doubling to 0. 0.02 to 0. 0.04 to 0.08, it all looks like zero. And uh, that's a challenge. And uh, so it's deceptive in the early growth of exponentials. That's the second D until it becomes disruptive. Right. And, and you mentioned that particularly with 3D printing, that it took a long time to go from that 0.01, 0.02, 0.04 before people realize, hey, we're going to eventually be able to print like an aircraft. Yeah, and it's the same thing for all of the, uh, you know, digital cameras, computers. You know, people get, you know, I go and I speak, as does Stephen, to amazing audiences around the world. And I'll ask the question, how many of you know about 3D printing today? Everybody raises their hands, right? We all know about it. I say, how many five years know about it? Ten years, twenty years, and at that point, you know, no one has heard about it ten years ago, 
let alone 20. It's a 30-year-old technology. It's just been in deceptive growth for 30 years. I, I like that phrase, deceptive growth, that it was growing just as fast 20 years ago, but now we notice it because it's big enough. Like, are there what, what industries do you feel right now might be in deceptive growth that we don't realize yet? So I think, you know, I think the indicator we point to in bold kind of for when things are kind of moving out of the deceptive phase and into, you know, the, the next stage and into the real world is the development of a user-friendly interface. And this is what you're seeing kind of across the boards. 3D printing, now not only everybody has heard of it, but there's 3D printers that are plug and play. If you can point and click a mouse, you can print in 3D. Children can print in 3D. The same thing with robotics. If you go back five years, right, you would have to be, to cite your alma mater, a Carnegie Mellon computer scientist if you wanted to program a robot. Today, we have Baxter. It's $22,000, so it's available at a price point to almost any entrepreneur. And you move Baxter's arms in the direction that you want Baxter to move, and he duplicates it. A child can program robotics at this point. And That's I, what... Oh, I guess the same occurred with the internet. Like, the internet had been around since the early 70s, but it was only the, you know, Mark Andreessen coming up with Mosaic that let us, let, let the, the population access it. And it's not and only the population, the it, was, it was the ability for people to start making money using it. And for entrepreneurs to begin using it and that the notion of entrepreneurs using Mosaic and then uh, uh, the browsers to build businesses is what allowed it to explode. So what we look for and talk about is where is the user interface allowing people to now begin to build new business opportunities and uh, you know, 3D printing is one. Uh, virtual reality, virtual worlds is another one that is going, I believe, from deceptive to disruptive uh, this next few years. What, what, what's what's another one? Like I sort of see I, I like how you're kind of um, almost defining the tipping point of these exponential industries, which which, you know, so Malcolm Gladwell wrote wrote the tipping point, but he never quite identified how you identify a tipping point. And, and I like this way of, de of defining what a tipping point looks like when, when the user interface is there and simple to use. So what's, what's maybe another thing? Like you discuss in the book synthetic biology. <laughs> like is that going to start reaching yeah, a, a tipping point? I think, I think that's what you're seeing with synthetic biology. And it's not quite there, right? The, but the idea they are, there are people already working on you know, the DNA typewriters basically. So you can – you know, essentially program DNA using a laptop, right? It'll be a user-friendly interface for synthetic biology. And you're getting, you know, bits and pieces, the bio bricks that are coming out of MIT's iGEM competition, which are basic SynBio modules, right, with their functions clearly defined that are sort of plug and play. What, what does that mean? What's, com what's coming out of their contest? I, I don't know. So, the, so what's coming out of the iGEM contest is they're building a library of what they call biobricks. These are basic, like, you know, DNA, strings of DNA code that are very, very, very simple, perform one simple function, right? And they're, these things are being cataloged in the library. I don't, Peter might know what the number is up to right now. I don't know how many uh, they have in the catalog at this point, but it, it's been going on for, seven or eight years at this point, and it's getting fairly extensive. 
And this is, again, one of those things you're going to need in place to have that user-friendly interface. So I think, you know, if I think Peter's right that the timeline for virtual reality is over the next year, I think synthetic biology, we're going to see movement in the next three to five years. Yeah, I agree with that. And can I give a little context here for the folks listening in? Sure. Um, uh, of of abundance versus bold. Abundance was written uh, as a way of where we're going to be in twenty or thirty years, and it's it was really to shake up people's point of view of this negative future. Of you know, hell, we're living in the most exciting time ever in human history, and the future is much better than you could possibly imagine. And here's why, in in detail. Uh, but bold was written as the how-to side, the roadmap, if you would, for entrepreneurs to get us to this abundant future with the realization that the world's biggest problems, the grand challenges are the world's biggest business opportunities. And you know, the saying that I like to use is you, know, you want to become a billionaire and help a billion people. And so bold is the roadmap, the how-to manual uh, for entrepreneurs whether you're a technologist or not, to be very clear, you don't have to be a technologist to be using these technologies. And we describe people who are not technologists using 3D printing, using network and sensors, even beginning to use synthetic biology as a means of thinking about the future of programming and, and DNA. Um, and But these are the most powerful tools that if you want to like take on one of the world's grand challenges and create extraordinary wealth and create this world, that's why we wrote Bold and, and that's how we wrote Bold. I think, Stephen, you said something very uh, important last time, which was, you know, when you looked at the book again, there is there is a, a useful how-to uh, element almost on every page. Well, it's interesting because the way I see the book, it's almost like the Wayne Gretzky uh, quote, uh, don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where the puck is going. So if you see that, for instance, um, 3D printing is, let's say, doubling its capacity every year and you know that a problem that exists is uh, getting new electronics up to the International Space Station, then you could kind of take those two ideas, intersect them and create a 3D printer for uh, eventually for electronic products that could exist on ISS and you've solved a major problem. Absolutely. So so let's talk about- I, you know, Oh, I was going to say Ray Kurzweil talks about that really well. Peter's partner in Singularity University, inventor and now head of AI at, at Google. He, you know, he said you can't invent technologies for the world where the world is today, right? Because the market's going to pass you by. You have to invent technologies for the where, where the world's going to be. Well, it's interesting because you also discuss very let's call them linear technologies, but how how exponential technologies can make them either better or more efficient. So, for instance. Um, you know, my kid wears Invisalign braces and now I guess Invisalign braces are being made with 3D printers. So it's not necessarily the end of linear businesses, but they become much more efficient and powerful when combined with some of these exponential ideas. Well, the crazy thing about like the Invisalign braces, right, is it's not just that they're being 3D printed. It's that they're printing 17 million individual pairs a year right? Individually customized for individual customers, 70 million of them in a factory of the future. That's not much bigger than a school auditorium. That's, you know, that's a operating, level of scale that we operators have seven, never been able to play at. Yeah. And it's operating seven by 24 in the dark with no human intervention. I mean, that's the interesting thing. So what, what's interesting about that, it reminds me of uh, when cars replaced horses, 
So everybody thought everybody was going to lose their job, uh, all the people who dealt with the horse industry. And clearly that did not happen. We had a massive century of growth. But where, where do you see uh, the, you know, if, if basically AI, robotics and 3D printing are coming along, they're going to, you know, even Foxconn, you mentioned, is going to eliminate a million jobs. So where do you see this intersecting with with uh, the job market in the long run? So there's a debate here. And uh, the debate basically says that throughout history, there has been uh, displacement of individuals. You know, we used to be two thirds of Americans were farmers, and now it's down to below two percent. Again, displaced by by machinery, robotics, and the such. And the question is, is it different this time? And a lot of this got a conversational start a couple of years ago. When the Martin School at Oxford said in the next 20 years, 40% of U.S. jobs will be displaced by AI and robotics. And, you know, I, the challenge is that for a lot of jobs, that's okay. You know, the Gallup did a poll recently that showed that 70% of Americans don't enjoy their jobs. And, you know, if you are working to put food on the table or get insurance for your kids, not because it's your highest calling, if a robot could do that job for you, and you could, in fact, do what you enjoy more um, and uplift yourself to a high-level job, that's a great thing. Now, is that going to decimate certain jobs? Absolutely. Is it going to create new jobs? Absolutely. Will the balance be a net positive or negative? I think we're going to find out. Well, let's talk about that. So your, your next D is, is disruption. And a classic example right now, two classic examples are Uber and Airbnb. So Airbnb is practically decimating actually, the whole actually the next d is uh dematerialization and then demonetization and then democratization maybe we should add you know disruption as a d as well but uh ah, i have it down as disruption my my mistake yeah so dematerialization is when the things that we physically had our gps on the dashboard of our suv a flashlight a camera a video camera all those things have physically dematerialized onto an app on our phone. Uh, and and do you want to take uh, demonetization, yeah. Stephen, with Uber? Actually, I, I want to talk about dematerialization for a second because I love the example okay. in the book where you, <coughs> add, you added up the prices of every app that's on my phone right now and their 1982 prices, and they were like $900,000 in 1982, but they're basically on my phone now for a few hundred dollars. Not just your phone, but the but the teenager in Mumbai's phone as well. Right, and so that so there, that's related to the democratization aspect as well. Like we all have the access to the yeah. same tech. And so, Stephen, over to you, pal. It's oh, uh, you asked me to talk about demonetization. Yeah, sure. This is the what what happens in demonetization is after you know the the tools themselves start dematerializing the money comes out of the industry we saw this with kodak kodak you know went bankrupt because they had built their entire business on the chemical processes and the photographic paper and those became demonetized right pictures became digitalized we found ways to share them via instagram and suddenly there this long-standing market was no longer there so and we saw this over and over right? craigslist advertising uber taxis why, why didn't Kodak get into the very simple business of sharing photos? It's not rocket science to share photos. 
But we hit, I mean, Peter, you know, Peter talked about this earlier, right? We, the human brain was not, did not evolve to process exponential change. I mean, Codex, astounding, right? They invented the digital camera and they created Hendy's law, which governs the exponential growth of pixels per dollar. It's literally the writing on the wall and they put it there themselves, right? Nobody was in a better place to see this, but this technology, the brain does not process it. One of the reasons, you know, we spend a lot of time in bold talking about the mental toolkit you need to play in today's world. One of the reasons you need this mental <coughs> toolkit is because the rate of progress is literally invisible. Yeah, you, you have this great quote uh, from Steve Jobs. It's better to be a pirate than join the Navy. And I get this question a lot. Like you always see when an entrepreneur pitches a VC, uh, a, the venture capitalist inevitably asks, well, why can't Google just make this? Or, or some other big company. And the reality is the big companies aren't really in the business of making small companies, you know, that, that are going to then grow exponentially. Well, and, and it's even worse than that, which is large companies have a tendency to protect what they have. And the day before something is truly a breakthrough, it's a crazy idea. And most big companies don't try crazy ideas. You know, you didn't have uh, enterprise rent-a-car or the large taxi fleets or the automotive industry create Uber, right? In fact, if you had gone to the, you know, the largest taxi fleets and limo fleets and rental car companies and said, listen, five guys in a garage are never going to buy a single car, but they're going to create an app and it can be worth $40 billion and displace 65% of the taxi business in San Francisco, you would have said, I'm smoking something. And that's the challenge that entrepreneur and the whole reason we wrote bold today is that entrepreneurs are able to take on and experiment and do crazy things more than ever before because the tools we now have, everyone listening to this, the tools you now have are exceed what the biggest companies and the governments had twenty years ago. Right? You've got access to the world's information on Google. You have the ability to design and then 3D print on the cloud through 3D printing technology. You have more computational power than the government had 20 years ago on Amazon Web Services. You have amazing things. And our goal here is to say, hey, wake up. The things you can do, the, the challenges you can take on, the businesses you can create are extraordinary. You know, it's time to stop doing photo sharing apps and start doing something really big. I mean, in fact, today, uh, a project that was in secret just just got announced um, a company that I'm on a founding director of called Hyperloop Technologies, uh, and it's a group of uh, you know half dozen of us that are working on on turning Hyperloop, the idea that Elon publicized and popularized a couple years ago, making it real and revolutionizing transportation. Can, can and you that's describe you it now. Can you describe it, Peter? What what is Hyperloop? Uh, Hyperloop is the ability to um, move. Uh, supersonic uh, through uh, a tunnel system, if you would. Imagine hopping in Los Angeles, uh, where I live right now, into a Hyperloop station, into a capsule uh, that moves through a tube through uh, effectively fluid dynamics of air moving at high velocities uh, and end up in Las Vegas 20 minutes later. So instead of driving for four hours, you're going you're going supersonic um, and or moving cargo. It's the next – it's the ability – to move at supersonic speeds at very low cost, point to point, uh, nation to nation, city to city. And uh, we'll start to see these kinds of revolutions occurring, not from a government, not from Boeing, but from a small entrepreneurial team. Right. So, so um, 
you know, you make predictions that are, are way out because you're able to use these different formulas for each of these Ds. So, for instance, you say by 2025, we should be able to print electronics on the ISS. Is that, you know, when you're making these predictions, um, you know, 10 years is a long time from now. People have a hard time even predicting, you know, rain or snow the next day. Like, can we say with confidence using these Ds that this is what <laughs> is going to happen? Well, I would say I, I'm on the board of 3D Systems, which is the top 3D printing company in the world, and I'm watching the technologies being designed and developed right now for being able to 3D print circuitry um, into into uh, devices. So I think it's without question. We saw the first 3D printed car this year, the first 3D printed apartment building and we're starting to see 3D printing uh, in micro devices that, that you'll inject, micro robots you'll put into the body. Um, uh, we are we're just at the equivalent of the early Apple Image Writer. Remember that thing used to go, ee, ee, you know, yes. and, and dot make print, right? Uh, that's where we are in 3D printing compared to what we have in our home right now. Thank you. I appreciate you laughing there, Stephen. Uh, uh, <laughs> I could do that again. Ee. Anyway, instead of compared to what we have today, you know, high resolution color that we think nothing of that's sitting at your desk. You probably have two or three of them at home right now. Now, let me ask you a question just based on your interaction just now. You've written two books together. What was the hard part of writing books together? I've I've written a book with my wife, by the way. It it was pretty hard at points. (laughs) Yes. I. We have a really, we work together really, really well. James. I, I mean, now, you know, there are ground rules, right? Like we both will lose our temper for sure. Like you're going to, right? You can't write a book without losing your mind at least a couple of times along the way. We just don't take it very personally. And it's just, you know, so <laughs> at, at all. And we've never, we Peter I mean, might we've, disagree with you right now. I just no, 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 no. Actually, that. it was the most seamless, easiest thing. I mean, we, we woke up one day and say, shit, we finished a book. When did that happen? It was one of the most enjoyable experiences I ever had. I mean, Stephen and I would get up, uh, well, he, Stephen's crazy. He gets up at like 4 a.m. in the morning and, and starts working. I, for me, I, I've been a night owl, but he shifted me and I'd get up at six and spend an hour. We trade, we trade chapters or sections and read out loud and work it. And, and, and it was really a joy. It was fun. And twice over, it was amazing. Uh, and and you know, our wives joke that we you know we were each other's mistresses. <laughs> uh, um, so, well, it was rare. It, it's their, a rare. It's a rare. Thing. It was, it, yeah, it was a great. I mean, it, it really it's been a, it's been an absolute blast to co-write these books together. We've had so much fun. So okay, so I want to ask you about kind of the Internet of Things and, and sensors. And you mentioned kind of we're eventually heading to a world where there are trillions of sensors and that, you know, between satellites and sensors, we're going to be able to map out every one half meter around the world. And you, and you pose the question, um, for instance, you can ask the question, do you want to know how many cars are in your competitor's parking lot in Moscow? And now, of course, that sounds like a very optimistic question to be able to ask. It'll improve competition. It'll improve information and knowledge. But where's... Um, and, and I hate to almost ask the cliche question here, but what is the issue of privacy when, when this happens? Well, first of all, uh, by the way, I, th- I don't know if you heard the announcement yesterday. Samsung announced they have a television 
And it's, it's meant to be a television you don't need a remote for, so you can talk at the television, but the television literally monitors all of your conversations. Which to me, you know, that sounds a lot like Big Brother is here. But I, you know, I, I, the, the, the point is we are, what, what is happening with sensors is we are getting access to literally unlimited information, right? That is the upside. What we are trading for it is privacy. And we are moving, you know, more and more and more towards radical transparency. And, you know, on a certain level, at least we'll be making different mistakes this time around. Yeah, I I talk about this a lot as just Stephen were asked about this all the time. And my comment is, listen, privacy is dead. It's long been dead. It's going to we're going to actually have to change our the way we think and our morals and our ethics. I have two three and a half year old boys. I have to teach them when you do something publicly and it's recorded, it's there forever. Uh, compared to when I was a kid, you know, I was a teenage terrorist building explosives okay. and things like that. And you know, if I was ever caught, uh, but I, I think we passed the seventeen year. Uh, uh, oh, by the way, yeah, where... is this when we tell the story about you blowing up your neighbor's swimming pool? <laughs> or, or I, I read one story where uh, you you're, you built a rocket and the stages went off at different points, and so oh, yeah. the rocket was basically I, I chasing see, you all over the field. It was an ICBM that <laughs> set fire to the field. Yeah, I mean, lots of these things. Uh, but we're heading towards a world where uh, you are going to know, be able to know anything you want, anytime you want, anywhere you want. And it's from uh, satellites on orbit today that can deliver you high-definition video from orbit. I mean this is the stuff that the only the CIA and the FBI had. Now you can have it if you want to, right? Uh, and then drones. Uh, we're going to have an explosion of drones. And you may say, well, not over my house. Well, listen, when the drone is, when the drone is autonomous and so cheap – and sending encrypted links that you can't track down, uh, you're not going to know whose drone it is. And if it costs, you know, if it costs a buck for the drone or fifty cents for the drone, people are going to deploy them and image things, whether you want it or not. And then whatever Google Glass becomes, they're going to be imaging things at millimeter resolution. We're going to be able to know and sense anything. Now, what you do with that data is now the interesting thing, right? Because uh, Stephen and I talk about in the book, and it's so true, the the next decade is going to be defined by data-driven companies. Uber, Airbnb, Google, Facebook are all data-driven companies. In fact, if you're not a data-driven company, you – I think the proper English is ain't going to survive. You know, it's, it's interesting about Uber and I'm curious your thoughts on this. I sort of think of Uber as not a taxi-hailing service but as a you know massive – uh, logistics slash workforce service. So on the one side, you have people who need things and are willing to pay for them. In the middle, you have logistics. And on the other side, you have a workforce, in this case, you know, cab drivers or limo drivers who are willing to provide a service. But there, there could be anything, that could be any service with that logistics software in the middle. And it seems like a whole slice of the GDP is going to be taken over by services like Uber or Airbnb or, or these disruptive technologies. Yeah, and and absolutely true. And that's of course what, what they see themselves as. And as they experiment with like, you know, helicopter rides or delivering you food or delivering you puppies. I mean literally the stuff they've experimented with. It's a logistic service. And and the other flip side of course is that Google with their autonomous car is going to move into that same service and now uh uh travel as the CEO of, of Uber is getting very concerned that the disruption of his company is going to be autonomous cars. So he's beginning to 
focus on investing in autonomous cars right now. It's interesting how, um, you know, when people complain about, let's say, uh, jobs lost or privacy, what really could be happening deep down is just sort of a nostalgia. Like people are going to be nostalgic for the privacy of blowing up your backyard or nostalgic <laughs> for driving a car through a stop sign, you know, just one more time. So, you know, everything, everything really is changing. And like you say, it's, it's over the long term. So, and our brains resist these things that aren't happening. You know, our brains resist things that don't stay the same, essentially. Well, we have, it's, it's a cognitive bias, right? This is Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Prize for, for discovering this. We have something called loss aversion. And it's, you know, at an emotional level, a simple level, it's what keeps us stuck in ruts. The idea is that whatever you have today, if I take it away, your brain automatically believes that whatever is going to come and replace it is going to be a lot worse. So in other words, if we were back in the vacuum tube era and I was like, dude, there's this new thing, silicon chips. It's going to replace the vacuum tube. It's going to be amazing. Your brain automatically goes, no way. Don't do that. Bad idea. That's really interesting because that could be an interesting way to think about things. You know, Again, as you say, you map out a way for entrepreneurs to think about that next generation uh, and Almost everything that you might think is a bad idea, if looked at in a different way, could surprise you. Although, although there's, you know, there's a great, I would say there's a great saying that if 99% of the people tell you your idea is crazy, uh, you're either insane or about to make a massive breakthrough. <laughs> you know, but it, it's interesting. It comes into conflict a little bit with a quote you have later on in the book from Jeff Bezos. So you you, you model uh, several, you know, great and innovative. Uh, billionaires or creators of billion dollar companies. And, and I think this is the most incredible question I've, I've read in your book, which is Jeff Bezos says, don't ask what's, don't try to predict what's going to change in the next 10 years. Ask what's not going to change in the next 10 years. And off that question, he built his, you know, multi-billion dollar business, which I thought was just genius. You know, oh, go ahead. It's, you know, what we, what we, one of the things that we did in the book, if you want to kind of take on these these grand global challenges, you know, you need to know how to think at scale and perform at speed, right? So we've got a whole section on on flow states and on scaling up that, which allows you to perform at speed. And we've got a whole other section on how do you think at scale. And what you know Jeff is talking about is long term thinking, right? It's a way of thinking long term, and I, I agree with you. I think it's one of the most amazing quotes in the business because his answer is phenomenal, right? People are never going to want their packages later, right? Nobody's going to call him and say, Jeff, I love that overnight delivery, but can I have it two weeks later, right? right. So uh, as a way of you know, saying what's going to stay the same and building a business that way and, and you know, using that as one of your long-term thinking tools, oh, it's an amazing hack. Well, and yeah, yeah. He, he basically built his business around uh, you know, keeping the prices low, making delivery faster. And I guess that intersects with this exponential thinking. Okay, well, let's deliver with drones eventually. And so he sees that coming if drones truly grow, uh, you know, double every year or triple or quadruple or whatever every year. He sees this question of, you know, let, you know, what's not going to change intersecting with the idea that some things are going to change exponentially. And so I, I find it to be fascinating. Um, another billionaire you, you model is Elon Musk. And obviously he's kind of a point of fascination for, 
for everybody. He's he's supposedly the model for for Iron Man. And you just you know you just talked about the Hyperloop idea. Uh, what has driven him? He's created so many companies that have been both evolutionary and revolutionary. What do you see drives his energy, like his inner purpose? So I know Elon relatively well. He's been an investor in my companies as a board member at XPRIZE. I tried to talk him out of the um, out of SpaceX early on back before he started because I had seen so many dead bodies on the road of building launch vehicles, and I'm glad he didn't do that. God knows he's revolutionized the industry. Um, he's driven by the desire to uh, make things better. He hates when he sees shitty products and services. And another uh, very dear friend of both of ours, uh, um, Adea Ressi, and he had a very famous drive across the U.S. in which you know Elon identified um, you know four basic things that he thought were the, were the future of humanity coming out of college: internet, uh, energy. Uh, space and transportation, and he wanted to make a difference in all all of those, and he has. He's built four billion dollar industries, and he's driven by his passion and purpose. So in two thousand and eight, you know, he had sold PayPal uh, to uh, to eBay, and he had cashed out, you know, probably on the order of a couple hundred thousand dollars um, when he started SpaceX. I'm sorry, a couple hundred million. Um, when he started SpaceX, he invested well over 100 million, probably 125 million to SpaceX, um, and then started investing in Solar City and in Tesla. But in 2008, when the down, economic downturn occurred, um, and SpaceX had had its third launch failure in a row, and he had budgeted for three launch failures and not for any more, and the Tesla financing was failing, and Solar City wasn't. All these things, he basically bet every dollar he had and went into debt. And you don't do that unless you're absolutely driven by your passion and, you know, by each of us, by our own demons. But he he bet everything. Um, so is, is that is that really? And I'm sorry to interrupt, but is that yeah. really true? Like, let's say the fourth launch had failed, and bam, like was he done at that point? Like, would he have had to start from scratch or? What was the what, – what's the real story there? He was borrowing yeah, the money story, to pay rent. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> the real story is he had bet everything. And if SpaceX had not had success, had not won the NASA contract, if Tesla had not gotten its financing, I mean God knows whether these could have recovered at a much lesser valuation. But I think the tribute to Elon that most people don't see is – the absolute fundamental belief and tenacity to bet everything in what your beliefs are driven by your passion and purpose. Yeah, no, he has a, a fascinating story and I'm, uh, I'm curious to ride the hyperloop from, from New York to, uh, Los Angeles. That'll make my life a lot easier. <laughs> so, so, um, what's, What's next for so Peter? You're working on Planetary Resources, which is the company to essentially mine rare earth minerals on asteroids. Uh, two questions there, and I know this is only peripherally related to the book, but I'm really curious: A, how likely is it? And B, why not mine for rare earth here in the U.S. Because there's there's plenty of rare earth minerals right in the dirt in the U.S. So, first of all, um, on the not we're 
we talk about going after three different materials, um, fuels, construction materials, nickel, iron, cobalt, and then platinum group metals. And there is not uh, platinum group metals right here in the U.S. Uh, it turned When the earth was formed, uh, platinum and PGMs are siderophilic and loving. They're very high density. They sank to the center. The only place you actually find platinum in Earth's crust, which is mostly light metals, boron, aluminum, and such, uh, is where there had been previous asteroid impact sites. So we're, we're actually mining asteroid impact sites. And the asteroids in, in, in space, in, in near-Earth space, that are high in platinum are a thousand times the concentrations. But you know, our strategy right now is really focused in the near term on going after uh, uh, fuels, rocket fuel, hydrogen, oxygen, methane, because a lot of these asteroids are very rich in hydrogen and oxygen and being able to fuel the continued expansion of the economy. And it's really we're just trying to build a fundamentally build a business in space that is based on resources, which is what has always driven uh, society to expand, right? The Silk Road, the American settlers looking for, for gold or spices or timber or oil or land or whatever it might be. It's looking for resources drives us. Uh, I'm going to give you credit for that answer, but I'm also going to uh, answer it slightly different for both of you. Because what I see is it's like being a little kid and everybody's fascinated by going into space and being an astronaut and Stephen, you know, being an extreme athlete, being a surfer. You guys basically created businesses and wrote books as if you were little kids doing whatever you wanted to do. <laughs> We are little kids. Well, thank we you are very much. Do. Yeah, no, it's a compliment. <laughs> I, I think everybody would like that. I think that's the future of the workforce, actually. So, yeah, um, it's following your following your passion, absolutely. And you know, you know, given that, I think it's a, hard for a lot of people to follow their passion. Now, you're both very smart people, and like Peter, I look at your resume and you know what you've done from like birth on, practically. When have you had a down moment? Oh like, man. Tell, I've had tell, tell, me, tell I've, me your worst moment. I mean, listen, in, in, in 1999, 2000, I got a phone call from a guy named Bill Gross who was running Idea Lab at the time. It just raised a billion dollars from folks like Steven Spielberg and others. He says, Peter, I want to build a company to do a private mission to the moon. Um, he said, I have $60 million set aside. Would you be the CEO of it? I, I sold my house in a day and moved from D.C. to Pasadena to run this company of this stealth company called Blastoff. And it was amazing. The challenge was that, you know, 18 months later in or 15 months later in April of 2001, when the dot-com revolution smashed down, you know, I had to close down the company and went into this, you know, not a depression, but a, a recounting of what am I doing? Where am I going? What's going on? And we've all had that. I've had companies, you know, at least a third of my companies have had spectacular failures. A third have been tremendous successes and a third will find out where they go. But Whenever you do anything really hard and really big, whether it's going to moon, mining asteroids, you know, building rockets, extending the healthy human lifespan, uh, you have to realize that your chance of success are less than 50-50. Uh, sometimes they're 10%, but you keep going because your ability to make them successful is stronger than ever before, given the tools, the mindsets, the technologies we have. And that's what Bold is about is – how do you increase your odds and actually go for, you know, for bigger swings at the bat? Well, and, you know, you're both working on different projects involving 
you know, extending lifespan, you know, uh, Peter, you have human longevity. Uh, uh, Stephen, you have your project on, on flow. Uh, what's the status? Are we ever as a race going to be, or as a species going to be able to live longer than let's say the maximum age that someone's lived? I mean, just look at the, at the history and, and, and realize that we've had a continuing, uh, growth in the, in the healthy human lifespan. But that, that's largely and, because, uh, that's largely because the average has gone up, not necessarily because there's more 80 year olds. Like there's uh, less, there's less the average, mortality. The average has gone up and health has gone up and the ability to combat the diseases of cancer, heart disease, and neurodegenerative disease has gone up, and those are all things that add on. But uh, the thing which we're doing right now is the realization that. So, I'll ask you a question: there are there are species of sea turtles and whales that live for hundreds of years, and the question is why can they and why can't we? You know, and I would posit it's it's because they have certain genes or proteins or sequencing that gives them protection or gives them extension and so forth. We're going to discover that in the next decade. And so, so what does that mean? Let's say we discover what, what genes do it for them. Then what happens? Do we just like inject it into ourselves? I know this sounds like a stupid question, but I I have no clue. Oh, the answer is yes and no. Uh, There are two, there are two mechanisms. One, my business partner, at HLI, co-founder and now the CEO, Craig Venter, actually is a company called Synthetic Genome. A mildly intelligent guy. Yeah, a a pretty brilliant guy. And has a company called Synthetic Genomics, which he stepped down as CEO to take over as CEO of HLI. And Synthetic Genomics is about rewriting the genome and repairing and changing. So yes, we could go in and if there's a specific set of genes need to be turned on, that can be done. The second co-founder is a guy named Bob Hariri, who's built a multi-billion dollar stem cell companies. And stem cells are a part of HLI. And the idea is we could take out your stem cells. We can rejuvenate them. We can rewrite the code uh, so that they're they're expressing certain genes or not certain genes and re-inject them into you. Now, we turn over our cells, all of our cells, on a regular basis in the human body. So imagine if the stem cells that you're now using to replace your skin, your liver, your lungs, whatever it might be, have this new code in them, which allows you to live longer to protect you against cancer or against neurodegenerative disease. This is this is the direction we're heading. So what's you know it reminds me of um, I think it's Arthur C. Clarke who said uh, what seems like you know the science of today was magic yesterday or some quote like that. What what, what do you think? Yeah. What do you see? that you're almost even afraid to talk about because people will think you're crazy. What, what's the magic today that's going to be science tomorrow? I have one, and I'll, I'll throw it out, Stephen, if you have other. I mean, one option is, are we living in a virtual existence right now? You, you know, is you, this you, really you, an end? You sort of intersect with Scott Adams, the, the creator of, of Dilbert on that, actually. Yeah, well, I sort of, I sort of reached the conclusion that we're living in an nth generation virtual existence already. So, and 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 why is that? Because what I see is people building virtual reality at more and more fidelity and more and more capabilities, and we'll we will develop a virtual reality existence where you can't differentiate between reality and virtual reality and create 
um, entities inside of that in the artificial intelligence world. And the question is, won't they ultimately go and create their own virtual reality? And, you know, I have to believe in a 15 billion year old universe that, that we're, we're not the first and we're in fact, we're some infinite sequence thereof. I, I love that. And, and Stephen, what about you? What's, what's, what seems like magic, but is, is science tomorrow? Well, the, you know, I, I, along the same lineage that Peter's looking at, I'm just, I, I'm a little, I'm a couple steps closer. You know, I work on flow states, which we know are the most addictive states on earth. And we understand kind of the neurochemistry underneath what, what generates them right now, video games and virtual reality, they can generate dopamine, a couple of these neurochemicals, but you get all five and you get like the most deeply meaningful, positive experiences known to man. What that means is there's going to come a point very soon, right, when virtual reality becomes more fun and more meaningful than regular reality. And what I see happening then is a giant migration into virtual reality. I also think, by the way, you asked the question earlier, where are jobs coming from? I think one of the places we're going to find jobs is I think we're, we've got an Internet-sized economy inside of virtual reality that's going to be coming online over the next 10 years. Well, you guys – Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Uh, the book is called Bold, How to Go Big, Create Wealth, and Impact the World. And I, I want to not only recommend that book, but I also want to recommend your prior book, Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think. Um, I think both these books are, are excellent. One almost feels like the sequel to the other. And and Stephen, of course, we, we talked earlier this year about The Rise of Superman. All of these books have been uh, game-changing for me. So I really appreciate you guys coming on the podcast. Thank you. If you go to boldbook.com, you can you can get uh, an audio download of the first chapter, get additional videos, and learn more. Um, and it's really, you know, for us, it's an inspiration to help entrepreneurs really go big and impact the world in a in a positive fashion because we now can, and we I think it's a it's a moral obligation that we do. Well, thanks. Thanks again. Thanks very much. And uh, gosh, I look forward to the, the next book. Take care, guys. Thanks, James. Thanks for having us. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.